0: Hello, friends. This is Mark Hefley, and you're listening to Lent with the Psalms, Martyrs on the Go Lenten Bible Study Series. Hopefully, the series has given you some food for your prayers. Today, for the third Sunday of Lent, we're going to dive into Psalm 95. Now, in case this is your first time listening, we've been going through the upcoming Sunday Psalm. And while the church only gives us part of each Psalm, I'll be going through the whole thing and in Mass, we hear the NAB, or the New American Bible Translation. I'll be using both the NAB and the ESV, or the English Standard Version Translations. But comparing multiple translations can actually be quite fruitful, so if you have another one at home, don't be afraid to crack it open. Okay, so let's open up to Psalm 95. This poem is much like your psalm from last week, Psalm 33. Both psalms begin with a call to praise God, and then continue to give reasons for doing this. But you might have noticed a slight difference in emphasis between the two. Whereas Psalm 33 highlighted God as trustworthy creator and providential provider, Psalm 95 highlights God as the great king. Another unique feature of our psalm this week is the shift in tone that occurs about halfway through. At verse 8, the psalmist stops his praise of the king and reflects on an embarrassing episode in Israel's history. He then ends with a stern warning. While some of the psalms can be neatly classified as prayers of repentance or rejoicing or petition, this psalm seems to blur the lines between praise and moral exhortation. Okay, so now that we've caught a bird's eye glance of Psalm 95, let's move in for a closer look. As pointed out already, our psalm has two major movements. The first, verses 1-7, is a call to praise God, along with reasons for praising. This is then followed by a moral exhortation in verses 7 through 11 to not harden our hearts as our fathers did in the desert. We'll walk through each of these movements. The first movement is marked by two bookends. First verse declares with an urgency that doesn't quite come across in English, come or move or let's go. Let's sing to the Lord. This call is mirrored in verse 6, which says, come, let us worship and bow down. The come here in verse 6 has also been translated as enter, you can take a look at the revised edition of the New American Bible, which in turn makes this verse mirror the last verse where we hear God pronounce his negative judgment, they shall not enter my rest. Now we'll get to this shortly, but first let's look at what's between these bookends. In between the two calls to worship are seven invitations. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Let us worship, bow down, let us kneel. Seven denotes completion or perfection. And so the psalmist is intentional in calling us to worship God completely with all that we have. This is echoed in the tone of the first few invitations. While the English has, let us sing and let us make a joyful noise. The Hebrew is more intense. It conveys something more like, make a war cry. The idea is the same as that expressed by the number of invitations. We should praise God with all we have. Okay, so we should praise God with everything we've got, but why? Because our psalm explains He is a great king over all of creation in verses 3 through 5, and He's a great king over us. Verse verses 6 through 7. The psalmist poetically depicts God's universal reign by first showing his rule over the vertical axis of creation. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also, verse 4. Not to mention God is the great king above all gods, up in verse 3. God also rules over the horizontal axis from the sea to the dry land in verse 5. As an aside, a similar idea is expressed in Psalm 8, but there it speaks of man sharing God's rule. In describing man's co rule with God over creation, the psalmist says, You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Notice here a similar progression, outward, upward, and downward. This poem moves from domesticated animals close to man, sheep, and oxen, out to the beasts of the field, and up to the birds of the air. The psalmist even pushes the area of man's co-rule out or down to the fish of the sea. And this is a big deal because the sea is the arena of death and chaos. So the dignity bestowed on man is unthinkable. In Psalm 95, when we hear God's hear about God's reign, we can also keep in mind the lofty calling of mankind to share in this reign that we see in Psalm 8. Coming back to Psalm 95, we come in verse 6 to our second bookend. Notice here that two different images of God are placed before our eyes. First, he's declared to be our maker in verse 6, but in the next verse, God is depicted as shepherd. Says, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. When read together with the earlier verses, when God is depicted as king, it can appear that the psalmist is simply giving us multiple images of God, but this isn't quite correct. The psalmist here only gives us two images of God king and creator. In the ancient Near East, which would include Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, and Israel, kings were poetically referred to as shepherds who watch over their sheep and bring them to pasture. This is seen in multiple places in the Old Testament is taken up by Jesus in the Gospel when he describes himself as a good shepherd. Again, check out John 10, verse 11. By referring to God as our shepherd, our psalm is stating again that he is our great king. And God is our great king because he is the creator, for one thing, but also because he is our providential provider. This theme, along with the requisite moral demand it places on his people, is taken up in the second movement of our psalm. Okay, so the second movement, which is verses 7 through 11, is a stern warning to not harden our hearts as your fathers did in the desert at Meribah and Massah. Quick note, we as Christians can speak of the Israelites as our fathers because in Christ we have joined the family of God. You can take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, where Paul simply takes for granted that Gentile Christians have the Jewish patriarchs as their fathers. Now, this is a pretty big deal, but we don't have time to unpack it here. What in the world happened at Meribah Massa? Well, we hear the story in our first reading from Exodus. As the story goes, the Israelites are thirsty in the desert and start to complain, which is completely understandable, but they go too far and call into doubt both the goodness of their liberation from Egypt as well as God's continued presence with them. Is the Lord in our midst or not? This is the crux of the issue. The Israelites who just witnessed all of God's wonders in Egypt, and who ate the bread from heaven, they reject God. Okay, so that's the story in a nutshell. How does it relate to our psalm? Take a look again at verse 6. I mentioned above that come can also be read as enter, in which case this verse would mirror the final verse, they shall not enter. The first movement of the psalm is one of coming into God's presence. As we come into God's presence, we recognize that this intimacy with God carries with it certain demands for our loyalty, much like entering a dating or marriage relationship carries with it certain expectations. The Israelites were brought into a dating relationship, so to speak, with God, and yet many were unfaithful. We are in a similar position, and this is precisely what our second reading from Romans is talking about. In the fifth chapter of Romans, Paul explains that Christ died for us and in doing so brought about peace between us and God. Additionally, we now have the Holy Spirit poured out into our hearts. We are now in a very similar position to those Israelites freed from Egypt. We've been freed from sin. God is dwelling in our midst, in us even, and yet we can be tempted to lose hope, to lose our confidence in God. And so our psalm warns us and say, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is speaking literally of today. Every day has its own causes for joy, as well as temptations, struggles, and sufferings. Sometimes we can be tempted to doubt God's goodness and his presence in our lives, or as our psalm says, we can be tempted to go astray in our hearts. Verse 10. So our psalmist is saying, If today, this very day, you're tempted to go astray, do not harden your heart, and forget God's goodness and presence in your life. The psalm is taken up into the letter to the Hebrews and applied to the lives of Christians. You can check out chapter 4 of Hebrews. But we also see the same in our gospel. In our gospel this Sunday, Jesus is having a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, and they start talking about water. Now remember how the Israelites had gotten into trouble. They were thirsty, and this thirst led them away from their confidence in God. With this in mind, we hear Jesus say, Whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Though this can be incredibly hard, our psalm calls us to turn in confidence to Jesus in our times of thirsting. Coming back to our psalm, it ends with us on our knees, since in verse 6 it says, Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. So we're on our knees and we're receiving a stern warning. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, I shall not enter my rest. The rest which the psalm is referring to here is the Sabbath rest of God. Remember the days of creation in Genesis. God created everything in the first six days and then rested on the seventh. Poetically, Genesis is teaching us that all of creation is ordered towards worship, towards being in communion with God. But not all of creation is treated the same way. Man is created along with animals on the sixth day, but only man is invited to participate in God's rest on the seventh day, the Sabbath. This is one of the reasons why the Sabbath was such a big deal in the Old Testament, and why Sunday is still a big deal for Christians. Keeping the Sabbath day holy was not simply about not working. It was also about remembering the awesome, and I mean here literally awe-inspiring, Dignity bestowed on mankind. Men and women, in keeping the Sabbath day, were already accepting God's invitation to participate in God's eternal Sabbath, the Sabbath to which we ultimately gain access in Christ. But the awesome gift of this invitation to the Sabbath rest comes with a stern warning. Accepting the invitation is quite difficult because it involves us placing our confidence in Christ, drinking the water that he gives, even in our own times of temptation in the desert. We thirst, and we sometimes want to turn back to our prior sins in order to satisfy that thirst, just as the Israelites wanted to return to Egypt. But to do so is to reject the water offered in Christ. It's to reject the invitation to enter into the Sabbath rest of God. And so the psalm calls us to praise God. It leads us into his presence. It places us, at least spiritually, on our knees. And it calls to mind the failing of our fathers. We hear the invitation and we acknowledge the stakes involved. This Lent is a time for us in the desert where we can choose each day to turn away from Egypt, our past sins, and turn to the water Christ gives. It's a time for us to say as we do in the refrain, if today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.